Ben. Well, good morning. My name is Heather, and I have the privilege of having the very best job here at the church. I work with the kids and the families. And so at the Music and Art Night, we're also going to have kids' activities. Well, let's try that again because I want a little more woos because I love woos. We're going to have kids activities. Yay! And kids art. So it'll be a fun night for the whole family. All right. Well, I am delighted to be able to stand before you here today. And I come before you humbly attempting to tackle a topic that is very difficult, confusing, painful on so many levels. And it's not something that I personally struggle with. But I do have friends and I do have family members who struggle with sexual and gender identity confusion. And so I attempt to step into this very carefully, very thoughtfully, and again humbly as we wrestle with these ideas and try to understand what does God tell us and how do we interact with each other around this topic. What I do know is that we as a church, the church at large I should say, doesn't necessarily have a history, especially around this particular topic, of dealing with it in a way that people feel known, they feel seen, and they feel like they belong. And so if that is you today, my prayer is that as we talk about these things, you would feel seen, you would feel loved, and you would feel like you do belong here. And if it's not something that you personally struggle with, my hope, my heart is that the Lord would open our eyes and ears and our hearts and minds so that we can better understand this topic and better be able to love those who do deal with these issues. And so with that, let's continue our time again in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just invite you again into this time. We know that you are here. Lord, and I just pray that you would just give me the words and give me the thoughts uh, to be able to share. Lord, I know that this is a broken world, and you long to touch each and every life. And the enemy tries to use so many things to pull us away and to blind us from you. And this particular topic is one of those things. God, so just grant us wisdom. Give us insight in what it looks like for us to understand this and love others in the middle of it. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we live in a culture that seems to be very obsessed with this topic. It seems to be everywhere we look. There are new terms that feel like it's constantly being developed each day, and so it's hard to understand and navigate this. We see this in movies. We see this in our shows. We see it in commercials in our clothing stores, in the libraries, it seems to be everywhere. And it seems to, especially in the last few years, be growing at kind of an exponential rate in terms of dealing with sexual and gender identity confusion. As I was looking at some statistics, there was one that I saw that was kind of interesting in terms of showing how quickly this is developing. In one of the, well, the main gender clinic in London, they reported that in 2009, there were 51 youth who entered into that clinic to deal with gender confusion. In 2016, that number jumped up to 1,800, and then in 2019 to 2,400. And the same statistics are being seen all over the Western world, and here even in the US. And that's just one thing that shows how quickly this is becoming such an issue in our culture. So how do we navigate that? What does that look like for us to engage on this level? And I know as a mom of two girls, what does it look like for me to teach my girls to lean into the goodness of who God is and the design he has on our life and the joy and the peace that he wants for them, but to also understand that there's a hurting world that where people are struggling and they're wrestling with things and they're trying to find meaning and purpose in life. How do we navigate both of those things? And I know that sometimes that can be friends that are in the school so what does it look like for us to support, to be loving, without maybe identifying or affirming a lifestyle? And in this particular polarized culture, 
To hold a traditional Christian view is not just old-fashioned or outdated anymore. Now it's considered to be hurtful and even hateful. And so with all these questions before us, sometimes we can feel stuck in wondering, how do we step into this? And so my goal here today is for us to lay a foundation, lay a firmer foundation that we can step on and hold ourselves on and be grounded in as we step forward into this topic. I clearly won't be able to answer every question that you may have on this. I have given you a wonderful list of resources. Please look at those and use those. But the goal for today is that we, again, can build a strong foundation that we can stand on so that we can better understand how to understand this topic and how to love those who struggle with it. So with that, I do want to start off with a couple, explaining a couple of terms that I'll be using. So when I say sexual confusion, I do mean same-sex identity, wrestling with that. When I say gender identity confusion, I mean uh, not identifying or believing or feeling in your mind uh, to be the same sex that you are biologically born with. And another thing to understand in terms of those terms, um, the way culture is using those terms today, it wasn't always this way, but sex and gender are now used completely different. So sex means your biology, where you, how you're born. Gender now means what you feel, what you think, how you perceive. So those are two terms. And gender dysphoria is actually the medical term that's used to describe that particular incongruence between your body and your mind. There's going to be a lot of terms out there. I would encourage you as you enter into discussion, one of the first things to do is just ask. We always want to ask questions when we're talking with people on various issues. But ask, well, what do you mean by that term? Help me understand that. Because it, there's not even agreement in a, in a lot of the terms, too, and how people are using them. So that's a great place to start. So with that in mind, how do we begin building a strong foundation, a firm foundation? Well, we need to develop a healthy perspective on viewing these issues a full perspective, a well-rounded perspective that's grounded in truth so that we can understand how to process these issues. And where we begin is I'm gonna answer two very common questions. And again, I'm gonna to try to do this very quickly. The books will give you way more insight and research on, and explain some of the research that's been done, but I'm gonna do just kind of a quick flyby. But two very common questions that we need to an find answers to as we're trying to lay this foundation. First is, how does sexual and gender identity develop? Well, it helps us to understand truth. So what we know is that there are a lot of factors that affect an identity development. There are some that are biological, the things that we're born with. We're born with inclinations or propensities or certain behaviors towards things. We also know that what affects identity is sociological. That's the environment that we find ourselves in. These are kind of the nature versus nurture arguments. And within the sociological, there's a lot of factors. Uh, trauma can affect how gender and sexual identity develop, the things that happen in upbringing. Social pressures can also affect how these two things develop. One particularly concerning thing that's happening among our youth these days, it, there's a new term that's been developed to even describe it, and it's called rapid onset gender dysphoria. Basically what that means, it's the coming on quickly of this gender confusion. And what we do know in what we are seeing with the youth is that it is very much influenced by social pressures, social tolerance, peer pressure, and things like that. Um, and so that is a whole topic in and of itself. But in answering this question, there are many things that affect the development. So what this means for us as we're trying to lay this foundation, culture wants to tell you that it's something you discover. 
what we know is not just something you discover. There's lots of things that affect it, that push the development along, and that can alter it. So that's important for us to understand. Second question is, is change possible? Well, the answer is absolutely it's possible, but it doesn't always mean completely and fully. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. And so God does miraculous things in our lives. I'm sure we all could attest to stories. But there are oftentimes struggles that we are left to continue to deal with. And the same is true for this situation. Because we understand how sexual and gendered identity develop and that there's a lot of factors, it's not simply somebody's deciding to do something because they just woke up one day and wanted to do that. Lots of things influence it. But we do know that change is absolutely possible. And what culture, so again, with this foundation, this healthy perspective, culture wants to tell us that it's not possible or it's not needed. It's who you are, and there's no reason to change. And as a matter of fact, it's harmful if you try to change. That's not true, and that's not what the research shows either. It, we actually, even there's some secular studies that will show after people have transitioned that there's still an ongoing support that is needed. And especially in this particular culture, there is this push for our young people and for parents to think if you don't affirm this identity, your child will probably commit suicide. Well, that is another myth. There is a high rate of suicide, but it's not just because they're not, you know, people aren't affirmed or able to transition. There's so many factors that lead into that. There's mental, I mean, I'm sorry, there's depression, there's anxiety, and there's other things that are happening. Um, in, in children's lives. And we also see what the research does show is that even after people have transitioned, there's not necessarily a decrease in suicide. So these questions are important for us to understand because culture is trying to tell you a different story. But what we know is that change is absolutely possible, but we may at times continue to struggle. And so that's just important for us to lay that foundation of our healthy perspective. Secondly, as we're building this, it's helpful for us to understand what are the ways that people commonly or typically view these issues? What are some other perspectives out there? Well, there's three that we're going to talk about. The first is an affliction perspective. And this is the idea that you are born into with this, where there's a condition that you find yourself born with or maybe have developed. So there's no particular moral component. It's just something that has happened to you, like diabetes or cancer, for instance. Well, with this perspective, uh, what is unhealthy about this perspective alone is that using treatment just to deal with this issue, which can be helpful because we need all kinds of things to help us along in journeys, but using that alone, seeing it as just an affliction, will remove God from that in the desire and the need to find healing in our identity in Christ and a redeeming of the goodness of our body in Christ. And so it is not a fully healthy perspective, but we can learn something from it. And the thing that we can pull from it is to increase our empathy and to increase our compassion. Because oftentimes, or maybe I should say, there's been times in the past where people want to view these issues as just a simple choice, like that there was nothing else that fed into it. But we know that that's not true. There are many factors. And so this perspective can help us have a little bit more empathy and more compassion with people who are wrestling with these issues because it's not as simple as a light switch to turn things on and off. There's so much more to it. In the same way we wrestle with things, and even as we love the Lord and seek him, we can continue to wrestle with things. 
Um, so the affliction perspective is the first perspective. The second one is a uniqueness perspective. This is another way that this topic is viewed. And the uniqueness perspective basically means to see this as something that's just part of you. It's something to celebrate. It's something that's unique about you. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing broken. Don't feel like you need to change. Again, as a matter of fact, it's probably harmful to try to do so. This is to be celebrated. Well, there are several things that are unhealthy about this particular perspective being the primary perspective. And no, this is the perspective of culture. So this is the main one that's out there, is this uniqueness perspective. Well, a couple of the issues with that is one, it makes one aspect of who we are the whole defining element of our identity. Sexual identity is not the whole of who we are. It is a piece. And this particular perspective and what culture is doing, it makes that piece everything, the defining element of who you are. And that is not healthy for anybody to take one piece to define everything about you. The second thing is it completely removes God. There's no need for God in this equation. His design has no relevance. He had no purpose in how he created us. That's very unhealthy. But there are some healthy things or some good things that we can pull from this. And the good things that we can pull from this particular perspective is this desire for people to find meaning, to find purpose, and to find wholeness. All of us as humans, we are longing to answer three main questions when it comes to our identity. And we see these really elevated, particularly for young people, for youth as they're growing up. As, adult, as adults, it's not always quite as heavy, but we are all looking to answer three main questions. And that is, who are we? Do we belong? And do we matter? Who are we? Do we have somewhere where we can feel like we are accepted? And do we have purpose? Do we have meaning? I mean, we're all searching for those answers. And sometimes we find them in all kinds of places. If we think about our own lives, what are the temptations that we've had to place our identity in? Perhaps it's our job, the position we hold. It could be about the amount of money we make. It could be in a relationship or a lack of a relationship. It can be in strengths, it can be in weaknesses. It was interesting, I was listening, there was this uh, Olympic athlete, who, a female athlete who won the gold medal, and she was a Christian and she was sharing, which was amazing in and of itself that she was bold enough to share, but she even stated that my identity is not found in my ability to perform or to achieve this gold medal, but it's found in Christ. So what we can pull from this perspective is this need to help people find meaning and wholeness and purpose. And especially for people who struggle with these issues with sexual and gender confusion, it can feel even more upside down because there's this incongruence with what they see or feel or think. So it feels even heavier. So that's an important thing to pull from this. But the third and final perspective, which is the one that we are gonna stand on while pulling some of these good things from the others is a biblical perspective. Because as Christians, we know that God has designed us. And so we need to understand what does that mean? He is our creator. What does it look like to live into the way that he has designed us? And so in the biblical perspective, the first thing we're going to, the first verse, couple verses we want to look at is in Genesis 1. And this whole chapter is so profound. It is the, it's just an incredible chapter. But starting at verse 26, we see how God designed us. And he said, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And then a couple verses later in verse 31, it says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. And so what we see from that for one, God created us in his image, which I still am just marveled by, the image of the God of the universe. But he created us, male and female, uniquely. And when he looked, he saw what he had made, and he said it was very good. And so the first aspect of a biblical perspective is to understand that God's design is good. The body he created is good. The things he has done is good. And in later in scripture, we hear Paul even talking about our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Lord himself comes to live within our bodies. There is something good about our body. And at the end of times, when the Lord comes back, we are going to be bodily resurrected. It's not just going to be spirits that live forever. We are going to be in body form. So there is something good, this theology of the body. We understand it's not just physical. We're not just soul, but we're body, soul, and spirit all together. And so as we're laying this foundation, what this tells us, what culture wants to tell us is that the body is interchangeable. It's just, you can change it and design it however you want. What matters is what you think inside. That's who you really are. But that's not what we see. That's not how God designed us. Both are equally important and good. The second thing is to understand that we live in a broken world. So he created his goodness, his world is created good. What he did was good, but then we chose not to continue to live into God's goodness and sin entered the world. And now every aspect of the created order is touched by this fall, by the fall. And so what that means is we are born with disease, we are born in sin, we are born with uh, proclivities and different things that aren't as God designed or intended for us. So again, with this foundation, this healthy perspective culture wants to say, well, if you were born that way, just celebrate that. But what we know is that just because we are born that way doesn't mean that's how God intended for us or how he wants us to continue living. With sin being in the world, with this broken world, and we are all experiencing that in some form, uh, we understand that, that that is what can happen. So the third perspective is understanding that our identity is found in Jesus. Our identity is found in our Savior alone. And what that looks like for us to understand that is when our identity is found in him, we submit to who he is and the things he asks upon our lives. I was reading the book Mere Christianity, which is a great book. If you haven't read it, I suggest you read it or reread it if it's been a long time. And I love the analogy that C.S. Lewis uses. He talks about our bodies being created, the human machine that God has created, very similar to as if when man creates a car, that kind of machine. We design cars to run on gas or electricity or whatever it's running on nowadays. Uh, but God has designed us to run on himself. So if you took the car and you tried to put in water as opposed to gas, it wouldn't go very far. It wouldn't go run very well. And in the same way, we are designed to run on him. And when we try to replace that with something else, we don't run well. And so to find our identity in Jesus means that we submit ourselves to him so that we can know how can we run well? How could we truly th thrive and find deep joy and meaning that can only be found in him? Paul talks about in Romans that what has happened is people, God, would people lust after different things and chase after other stuff, God has gave them over to the worship of themselves, to creature worship, he calls it, over the creator. What we see in our culture is this individualistic mindset where we have elevated our desires, our wants, our things that make us happy above anything else. And so as believers, we understand that we constantly need to submit that. 
And when we submit to our Savior, it's not that we are denying ourselves true happiness, but it's only in Him that we can actually find what true happiness really is. And so that is our biblical perspective, and we need to stand firm and stand in that to understand how to view these issues. In Paul, he talks about in Colossians that we are not to be held captive by philosophies and empty deception of the day. And so the reason we need to understand this first is so we're not hearing what culture is telling us and starting and making ourselves question. Because I'm seeing this creep into the church for sure. This is definitely coming into the church in terms of an acceptance of a, of a certain way of living. But a healthy perspective for us, we need to have a firm foundation. We know what is true, not just what culture is telling us, and we know what God tells us. So that's where we have to stand firm as we continue. So we have a healthy perspective, hopefully, or at least the start of one. Again, lots of books can develop that even further. But now we need to ask, how does this healthy perspective, this healthy foundation, change how we love? Well, we have two groups of people that I want to talk about. How does this change how we love? Let's begin with those who are outside our church walls, those who have yet to treasure Christ, who have not submitted to who he is, who have not submitted to a biblical perspective, who are leaning towards the uniqueness perspective. Well, there's a couple of questions, three questions actually, that I would love for us to ask ourselves as we're trying to understand how do we interact with people outside the church, let's remember that, who wrestle with sexual and gender identity. How do we decide how we interact? How do we decide the things that we say or don't say? So I just want to present a few things for us to ask ourselves as we're making those decisions. The first is, what does it look like for me to meet them where they are? As I said, these, we're talking about non-Christians. We're talking about people who have not submitted to Christ. They have not submitted to his design on their life. So they have not submitted to a biblical perspective that we hold and a biblical understanding of things. They have submitted more to this uniqueness perspective. And that means their identity is who they are. And so for us to meet them where they are, we have to understand that. And it's not fair for us to ask them to change behaviors that we have, dis have agreed to submit to. It's not fair for us to expect that they would do the same thing when they have not decided to submit to Christ. And we see, this is how Jesus responded to people. I mean, there's all kinds of stories if you see how Jesus interacted with people. We can take, for example, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was someone who was lying. He was a cheating man, and nobody liked him, and it was well-deserved because of, of who he was and the lies and the, the stealing that he did. Jesus simply invited him in to have a meal. They had a meal together. And because Zacchaeus saw something different, he saw something in him that he wanted, and he ran after that, and that changed him. We also see how Jesus responded to the woman that was caught in adultery. So these men brought this woman who was caught in adultery, threw her at Jesus' feet and said, there, how are you going to deal with her? And what is he, how does he respond? He defends her. He protects her. And it's not first after he makes sure she understands, well, what you did was wrong and you better change first. He protects her. And after all the accusers have gone, then lovingly he says, now go and make a different choice. So as we're trying to figure out how do we interact, we have to ask ourselves, what does it look like for us to meet them where they are? Not where we would like them to be, but where they actually are. And they're in a place of looking for a purpose and meaning, and they're searching and thinking they're finding that within their identity. A second question for us to ask is, how might my interactions be perceived? 
So as I shared that the main perspective of culture is this uniqueness, what that means is they see this aspect of them as their whole identity. So when we make choices to either not engage or not say certain things, how that can be perceived oftentimes is a complete rejection of them as a person. Not just a piece, but again, this is their identity. So if we're like, well, I'm, I, I can't hang out because I need to you know, stand on truth, which we absolutely are <laughs> needing to stand on truth. But when we choose to interact in such a way, they feel that as a rejection of them as a person. And if we're Christians who are doing that, oftentimes that gets transferred to God and they feel like God himself rejects them too. And I'm not sure that's the message that we want to have conveyed. The third question we can ask ourselves is, how will my interactions affect the relationship going forward? So the choices I'm about to make, does this put a wall between me and this other person? Or does this allow for this relationship to continue? So these are three wonderful questions that we can be thinking about as we're trying to figure out how do we engage with our friends, with our kids' friends, with the people God puts into our lives. How can we love them? Well, with those questions in the back of our mind, here are some practical ways to get to that. I don't know. Oh, here we go. Okay, here we go. Some practical ways for us to love. The first is for us to remain in relationship. To remain in relationship. I want to ask that we consider inviting people into our homes, inviting our friends, our kids' friends. If we have adult children who maybe have chosen a lifestyle, maybe they have a partner, let's try maybe not to exclude them from our lives because we don't want to affirm a lifestyle. They have not chosen to submit to Christ. So let's just love them where they are. And by remaining in relationship, hopefully we can earn trust and we can earn the ability to be able to point them to Jesus. But some practical ways to love, we remain in relationship. The second thing is I'm going to suggest, and I know this is a hot button, that we use preferred pronouns and names. And the reason I'm going to suggest that is because, as I mentioned earlier, when we consider how people feel, how they perceive our interactions, and because they're coming from this uniqueness perspective that this is who they are, when we choose not to do this, we're just rejecting them as a person. And so this is more of a kind of a hospitable and a grace-giving stance. It doesn't mean that this was what's right for everybody. I know that the Lord needs to lead us in how we're going to interact with people. And I know for some, it feels like, but I don't want to lie. I don't want to say something that's not true. But I just think for those who have not submitted to Christ, we want them to know that we want to stay in relationship with them. We want to earn an ability to be able to show them love and point them to Jesus. So a practical way is to use their preferred pronouns or names. And a third way is to remember our goal. Our goal with those who don't know Christ is not to change their behavior. That is not what we're after. Yes, we ultimately want behavior to change, as we do for anybody, because we want people to submit to Christ in such a way that they will experience the love and joy that only comes with submission to him. But that's not our goal. Our goal is to point them to Jesus, because Jesus is the one who changes people. He's the one who changes us all from the inside out. It's not our job to make sure they understand what they're doing is wrong. That's not. That is for the Lord to handle. So those are some practical ways that we can love, some questions to ask ourselves, some things that we can do to love those who struggle or deal with these issues outside the church. I'm sure there are other ways. But now let's talk about what it looks like to love those who struggle inside the church because they're here. We have people that definitely wrestle with these issues. And we need to begin by creating a safe place. 
This is one of those issues that is so visible, and so it can come with such shame. It's like addiction, it's like some of these other things that are on the outside. And we need to create a place that is safe for people to wrestle, safe for Christians, for believers who've grown up in the church or who are exploring questions of the church to be able to wrestle with these things. We need them to understand that it's okay that they haven't arrived. And a way that we can do that is, is to be empathetic. The first way we can do that is to try to be empathetic in our reactions. You see, one thing for us to understand is that oftentimes uh, when people have decided to identify in a certain way, um, or if your child may come to you, they are two or three years down a journey of struggling with this. And because oftentimes in the church, it's not necessarily the safest place to wrestle with this kind of issue, because it feels like it brings so much shame, they're going to their friends, they're going to social media, they're going to culture to try to figure things out. And then from all of that, they're getting a message and they've arrived at a decision. Well, we need to create a place where we can enter into that conversation at the beginning, at the start of that wrestling. Because if we can't have this discussion, Culture is ready and willing to open their arms and accept them. So by being empathetic in our reactions, it allows people to wrestle. So if someone were to come to us saying, this is where I am wrestling or dealing with or trying to understand, hopefully the first words out of our mouth are, thank you for sharing that with me, such a difficult thing. Thank you for trusting me and being willing to share that. And I love you and I'm going to walk with you on this journey. Another way we can create a safe place is for us to be honest about our own struggles. Now, these are all things that we can do as a corporate body, as a church, but also personally, individually in our own families, with our friends and with our kids. We need to be honest about our own struggles. If we are acting as if we have it all together, because I know we all know we don't, but we feel like we should need to present this. If we are presenting that, it makes other people who are really wrestling with things not feel like they can share because they might be the one that gets rejected. So now obviously we want to do this appropriately, but appropriately share with our own children where we've wrestled, the struggles that we've had. In our life groups perhaps, let's share these things so that we welcome it to be a place where people can be open and honest. Another way to create a safe place is for us to engage in open and honest dialogue on this topic. We need to learn. We need to be doing our research. We need to understand this. And then we need to be willing to discuss it. I don't love that I've had to have conversations around this topic already with my fourth and sixth grader. But the reality is, I need to. And I need to do it in such a way so that they understand this is not just about rules. It's not just about behaviors. It's about God's goodness for your life. And the reason he asks these things of us is because he wants you to have the most fullness that you can experience in life, not to deprive you of joy. So as we're having dialogue, it's important that we help our children, help our friends understand the why behind things and not just the strict standard of rules and behaviors. I mean, that's, that's a big goal of us here at RCC. We are all about that. So we need to engage in open and honest dialogue. My daughter, she has a friend, and my sixth grader already, we have a friend, and what my daughter responded to her, because her friend asked her, how do you feel about this? Because she feels like she's questioning, her friend is questioning some things. And my daughter was able to respond, well, this is not something I agree with because I don't think it's what's best for you, but you're still my friend and I'm still going to love you. And she wouldn't have been able to respond that way if we hadn't already entered into the dialogue. So we need to be able to enter into dialogue to help equip our children to understand because if we don't give them this foundation, if we don't tell them what is true, 
culture's gonna tell them. And we already talked about what culture's gonna tell them. So we need them to understand that there's so much more to that and not to be afraid. Another thing that we can do as we're trying to love those who struggle with this issue, who deal with these issues inside the church is for us to share a narrative of hope. So there's a couple narratives that are out there right now. The cultural narrative, we've, we've talked a lot about this, is one where it says, this is who you are. This aspect of you is you. Celebrate it, enjoy, embrace it, don't hide it anymore. That's what culture is telling. There's also an unhealthy Christian narrative that has been, whether we feel like we've said it, there's a perception that you need to change. That behavior is absolutely wrong. And until you change, you're not welcome here. You're not accepted here. We need to share a different narrative. And this is a narrative of hope where we help those who are in the church. Now we're talking about believers. So as our children come to us, as friends come to us, as we've built a relationship of trust where now we can have these dialogues, the narrative that we want to share is this one aspect of you does not need to be the defining element. This one aspect of you is not who you are. You can choose to anchor your identity. You can choose to ground your identity in so much more and in who Christ is and who he's made you. That's the narrative of hope that we want people to understand. It's okay that you are struggling. It is okay that you are wrestling. This doesn't mean you're broken. It doesn't mean you don't love God enough. It doesn't mean that he won't accept you. We all have struggles on this journey. This is a piece of who you are, not your whole identity. There was an analogy that I read that I just loved how, it just gave me a good picture to understand this even fuller. And it used the example of a, of a desktop, your computer desktop, and how when every, all the applications are closed, you see all these applications on the screen. Well, this gender sexual identity confusion is just one icon on your screen. But when that application is open and it takes over, it can feel overwhelming. But a narrative of hope helps calm us down to realize, no, let's close that. Let's realize that's one piece. That is not the defining element of who we are. Because we want to offer everybody this narrative of hope. We want to be a place where people can come and they can belong here and feel welcome. There's, it's more of a relational type of perspective as we're thinking how we want to love. And that looks like there's, there's two different ways it could be perceived. Uh, well, there's one way that it has been perceived, but the relational mindset is that people feel like they belong and then they can believe and then they can become who God wants them. And an older way of relating to people is you have to become or behave first, then you believe, and then you belong. But that's not what we want. We want people to know that they belong because it is up to the Holy Spirit to change. So when they come and walk into our lives, walk into our churches. We want people to know they're welcome here at any stage of the journey. And we are gonna point them to Jesus so that the Holy Spirit can work in and through their lives. So we wanna offer this narrative of hope, both to Christians and non-Christians who are struggling. Because what our culture is doing right now, what we know is it's creating victims. Culture wants to tell you, tell people that this is what's gonna make you happy, but this is not true. And there is lots of research that shows it is not making people happy. Maybe there can be happiness temporarily, but it's not lasting in long-term. And so what's happening is there is a culture creating a ton of victims. And we as a church have an opportunity to do victim care and point people to the true place of lasting hope and peace and joy. So that's how we begin 
we have to understand this healthy perspective. We have to understand these issues well so that we can stand on this truth. And then we need to interact and love others in a way that points people to who Jesus is. So let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do want to thank you for an opportunity to dialogue on this and to think about this. And I know we're all in different places, and I pray you would meet each one of us where we are and that you would challenge us in ways to love people. We want everybody to know the joy and peace that comes with knowing you and not to experience the pain that is out there right now. Lord, so help us learn how to do that. Put people in our lives that we can build relationships with so that we can share the love and the joy that you offer. We thank you, Lord. Amen.